Out of all the Torah's dynamic characters, there's one who we don't really get to learn an awful lot about, which, which is ironic since he's actually the most active and influential character in the entire Chumash, the five books of Moses. So who is God? What do we know about him, both from within the written Torah and through Judaism's oral tradition? And how can our understanding of what God is change our perception about Judaism as a whole? I'm Chaim Davies, and this is The Chaim Davies Show. Welcome back to the show. This episode is sponsored by Madison Braids. If you or one of the women in your life are looking to add a fresh twist to your style, there's really nothing like the quality of Madison Braids to upgrade your hairstyle. Madison Braids are the top-rated synthetic hair braid company in the United States. And with a wide variety of shades and colors, you're sure to find something which complements any woman's style. And today, you can save 10% on your next order. All you have to do is head over to madisonbraids.com and use the code CDSHOW10 to save 10% on your next order. I'm telling you, my wife has them, my daughter wears them. They're high quality and an easy way to enhance your look. That's madisonbreeds.com using the code CDSHOW10, and you'll save 10% off today. Also, before we dive in, I just really wanted to open with a sincere thank you and, and just a tremendous debt of, of appreciation that I have for all of the support and, and encouragement and love that's been pouring into Sinai Studios and to my show over the past week. All of the support tremendously makes a difference, and we're very much appreciative. So we're going to be talking a little bit about God. Now, the Torah is not a collection of biographical sketches. We're often told little to nothing about the origins of the greatest protagonists or some of the most infamous antagonists of the Bible. And that's because the Torah is not a history book. Its central mission is not to inform Jews or the rest of the world about the important stories of Jewish history. Sure, when the stories facilitate the central purpose, then, of course, we get to hear all sorts of incredible tales. But primarily, the Torah sets its sights on expounding the nature of Israel's covenant with God. And when knowing the stories facilitates that goal, then we get to have a little bit of story time. And even when that's the case, and we do get those stories, every detail which finds its way into the narrative is seen as imbued with meaning inside every nuance of the text. So in many cases, we're told practically nothing about the formative years of Torah's greatest personalities. I mean, when we're introduced to the founding father of our nation, Abraham, Abraham, he's already in his 70s, having spent decades of his life defying his culture's expectations, living a life of ruthless questioning. Now, of course, our oral tradition fills in many of these gaps and details and provides the backdrop for understanding the written Torah's presentation. So we get to learn about his youthful rebelliousness, his years of searching and understanding, his confrontation with the King Nimrod, right, who throws him into the fiery furnace. All of these incredibly illuminating stories don't make it into the text itself. When we actually encounter Abraham in the text, we only know of him what the Torah speaks of on its surface. And yet, when it comes to someone as central as God, it's actually really important that we have an idea, some sort of backdrop, of who we are speaking about. And I'll tell you why. You know, one of the greatest Torah revolutionaries in the past 50 years was the great Rabbi Noah Weinberg, blessed memory, the founder of the modern Jewish outreach movement. And one of his great contributions of practical Jewish thought to the world 
was his famous 48 Ways to Wisdom series. And in the series, he mined the words of our sages for practical insight into effective living based on the Torah's values. Rabbi Weinberg once shared the following really beautiful illustration of the importance of defining our terms when we're going to use them in a conversation. So imagine you have a friend who just went to visit the land of Israel for the very first time. And he returns and you're having a conversation with him about all of the experiences he, that he had while he was there. And he tells you, he says, it was an amazing experience. We toured the entire country, saw all these beautiful cities and the fascinating archaeological sites. Although, he adds, I'm actually a little bit disappointed. Disappointed? Why is that? Well, you know, since it was Israel and all, I sort of thought I would see more things that were, you know, holy. You know what I mean? So you say to him, I see, I see. Hey, hey let me ask you something. Since you did so much traveling, you saw so much, did you happen to see any bafoof sticks along the way? So he looks at you with this kind of curious, confused look. I'm sorry, bafoof what? I'm not sure if I saw any of those. What is that? So you tell him, oh, no, no, don't worry about what those are. I'm just curious if you saw any while you were there, you know, on all your travels. So he says, wait, what? I mean, how could I possibly know whether I saw any of those bagoosnicks or whatever it is that you're talking about if I don't even know what that is? My friend, tell him, I can ask you the exact same question. How could you possibly know whether you saw anything holy if you don't know what that even is? Mic drop moment, right? So this gorgeous little dialogue really captures what's wrong with so much of our contemporary dialogue. Because without defining our terms, we speak right past each other, debating the relative virtues of freedom or the right to choose or, or the existence of God without ever stopping to define our terms. I mean, how can we ever expect to arrive at some consensus amongst one another if we don't at least attempt to define the words we're using? But probably the worst victim of this is ourselves. When we fail to reflect on what we mean by what we say, we allow the illusion of clarity to box us into our infantile understandings, constantly patting ourselves on the back and assuming that we have some sort of insight. So when it comes to knowing what we mean by the word God, this is obviously infinitely true. You know, as humans, we're naturally concrete thinkers. It takes a tremendous amount of development in us before we can really start dealing with abstract concepts. And, and even then, we're, we're really good at just making little personas of everything, right? Anthropomorphizing the world around us into terms which make sense to us, which speak to our senses. But when we're dealing with God, you see, there's nothing as abstract from physicality as that. And so the issue becomes all the more of a problem. Most people grow up thinking of God as some sagely old man with a long white beard, right? Hiding up in the cloud somewhere. Or maybe it's a bright light within a misty cloud hovering timelessly out there in space. Whatever imagery you come up with, we're automatically in dangerous territory. And not only because we've created God in the image of our choosing, but because we've failed to seek out clarity on what God is. We've accepted those infantile definitions. And by doing so, we've abandoned ourselves to our very own imaginations. And obviously, that's going to wind up affecting every area in which we relate to God. So there's a great story that's actually quoted in the name of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. I can't actually vouch that this story happened, but that's who the story is attributed to. And in the town of Berdichev, there was this proud, self-proclaimed atheist who went around sharing his critical views about God and religion with anyone else who would listen. His problems with this cruel, distant, and uncaring God who had filled his life with such suffering. 
So the story goes that the fellow ended up in a confrontation with the great Rabbi Levi Yitzchak. And after hearing out the man about all of his complaints, the rabbi turned to him and said, you know, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in him either. Right? So, so we need to understand who we're talking about when we're talking about God. Now, obviously, you could spend a million lifetimes trying to understand and internalize God's reality. And of course, it's infinitely beyond our grasp. And different authorities are going to approach this topic from all different angles. But we got to start somewhere. And you're listening to my podcast here on the Chaim Davies Show, so I can only attempt to give you my perspective on who God is and how we're meant to relate with Him in an authentic way. What I'll also add over here is that if you'll hold on through this kind of dense conversation that we're about to have for the next 10 minutes or so, I'll give you two actionable items of wisdom which can begin transforming your relationship with God today. So probably the best place to start this conversation, well, any conversation, but one about God in particular, is with the Rambam, right? Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon in the middle of the 12th century. We've mentioned already in past episodes how the Rambam was a monumental figure in Jewish history, how each of his writings charted a new course of scholarship for generations to come. Now, arguably the Rambam's greatest work, his magnum opus, and one of the central writings really of our entire national history is the Mishneh Torah, the Review of Torah. The Mishneh Torah is comprised of 14 volumes, which together present all 613 mitzvot, the complete set of Torah's actionable instructions for life, in all of their brilliant detail. And the way that the Rambam begins the first volume of the series is absolutely insightful. He starts off by explaining the core concepts of how to conceive of God without even once mentioning God by name for a complete five paragraphs. You see, the Rambam understood the problem that we immediately confront when we're discussing God. We just keep on modifying our childish definitions rather than turning a new leaf and beginning a mature conversation from scratch. Our predefined terms blur our judgment and limit our objective assessment of new ideas as they're made available to us and, and enter our frame of reference. So the Rambam pulls out a blank canvas. He starts at the beginning. No labels, ceremonial titles, none of that will do. We can't talk about God until we discuss what exists beneath words, beyond the limits of language, beyond our subjective experience. And so let's begin together today with a brief look at these opening words of the Rambam's Mishneh Torah. In the very first section, called Hilchot Yesodei HaTorah, or Foundations of the Torah. He writes as follows, Yesod HaYesodot, the foundation of all foundations, Ve'amud HaChochmot, and the pillar upon which all wisdom is predicated, is Leda, to know, and he uses this word know advisedly, as we'll explain, to know, Sham Matsui Rishon, that there is first being. There exists a force of being which precedes all things, and it is this first existence which allows all else to exist, which provides the possibility of existence to all things which bear that quality. And he continues and says that all that exists in any realm of being that it does only exists by the virtue of the reality of that first being. Now this is already a pretty dense topic for your morning commute, right? And using the word existence 11 times in a single sentence probably doesn't help that much. If this is making your brain feel like it's going through a blender the way that it makes mine, let me know what you're going through by writing mind blown in the comments below. 
But that being as it is, let's actually try to penetrate to the essence of the Rambam's presentation here and discover something truly life-changing about his presentation of who God is. So let's use a little analogy to unpack this issue. So suppose we're talking about a red sweatshirt. Now you'd have to admit that we can only discuss a sweatshirt having the color quality of red if there's such a thing as the color red, right? I mean, if there's no red, then you couldn't have a red sweatshirt, right? So if we're gonna discuss a red sweatshirt, we're acknowledging that the color red exists independently of the sweatshirt. And that this red sweatshirt is, simply contains one expression of the innumerable manifestations of red that could occur throughout reality. Now in a similar way, and this is just an analogy, but in a similar way, the Rambam explains that we can only discuss anything that exists, meaning that has the quality of existence to it, if we understand that underlying all that exists is the very quality of existence itself, that force of being, which is the premise upon which we associate every entity with the quality of being, of existing, as opposed to not existing. Now the Rambam continues to explain the evident implication of this. If being itself would not be, then clearly no entity possessing being could be either, since its beingness would be negative rather than positive. If existence doesn't exist, then nothing can have that quality. However, continues the Rambam that the inverse isn't true at all. Should none of what we know as existence exist, that lack of existence wouldn't diminish the wholeness and singularity of this first being at all. Whereas our existence is contingent or dependent on the necessary reality of, of that existence, of first being. First being is entirely non-contingent on our limited expression of existence. His existence is ontologically non-contingent. What this also implies is that this first being is absolutely singular, a true oneness, since its existence precludes limitation of any kind. It also implies that this existence is eternal, since there's no cause which could have preceded it to provide it its own existence. It's only after five dense paragraphs of philosophy like this where the Rambam finally tells us that this first being he's been describing this whole time is the God of Torah, the God of Judaism, that entity which constantly imbues existence into all things and powers the very fabric of the cosmos, that undying force of existence generating all of life. Why does anything have existence to it? Because God causes it all to exist as it does without having any form or mechanism to do so. He powers it all by the virtue of his own being. It's only in as much as God exists that anything else has the possibility of existing as well. So now that I've used the word existence more times in 20 minutes than your average person uses in an entire year, <laughs> let's take a step back and consider the implications of, of what the Rambam has done here. He's intentionally avoided any mention of God by name. And what we've learned is that there's this first being, right? The entity which allows all else to be and provides it with its essential existence. So it becomes clear right away that this being is beyond what any descriptors, any human language could attempt to convey about it. I mean, all we can say in a somewhat silly way is that this existence exists. <laughs> it's silly, of course, because if it's existence, then of course it exists. But it's also silly since we're using the term exists in a parallel way to how we describe that tree or some person as existing. But the existence of first being is fundamentally different from all those types of things. 
by virtue of its non-contingent nature, that it's ontologically different than everything else which exists. So we kind of get stuck in a situation where we can't really say much about God. The way the Rabbeinu Bachir writes this in the 10th chapter of Shar HaYichud, The Gate of God's Unity, in his book, Chavot HaLevavot, Duties of the Heart, is that we can really only say three things about God. He exists, he's one, and he's eternal. And these sort of form a negative theology from which we're supposed to derive that God is not plural, God is not non-existent, and is not created by anything else. Now, as elegant and succinct as that is, it kind of gives us very little to relate with in any substantial way. But more deeply, it actually fails to translate into that interactive character played by God as found in the Torah. And it certainly seems to fall short of the Torah's own directive of vehalachta bidrachav, that we're meant to emulate God's ways in the ways that we live our own life. I mean, what's practically actionable about seeing God's existence in this eternal, untouchable way? So I think that there are really two really clear and simple concepts that emerge from this presentation of God. And I'll just give a little plug over here and say that in our next episode, we're going to focus into the persona of God as presented through our Torah more directly. So stay tuned for that. But there are really two powerful takeaways from these ideas we've said today, which we can already begin living with and bringing into our experience. The first idea is the overlap between God's existence and our own. In other words, if I recognize that I exist, which is pretty much the one thing that I know most clearly in life, then I must recognize that there's a concept called existence, which I happen to be an expression of, a quality which I happen to manifest. But by recognizing that, I become aware that my existence, along with that of time and space, the trees outside, the forces of nature, and anything else which exists, is all a direct expression of that first being. It emerges that I accept the existence of God, the first existence, if I accept my own existence. So to the extent that I know that I exist, I can know that existence exists. And so here's the thing, and this is how presenting God through the Rambam's lens becomes so powerful. Because what this means is that there's a powerful intimacy which lingers between our existence and God's. Because if I can relate to my own existence as an expression of God, I can begin to sense the grandeur in my own life and the way in which I express that power of all of creation. And as I grow in my awareness, my dot of God's reality, I immediately become moved, shifted at a fundamentally deep level. I'm brought into a broader, perhaps more expansive point of view in my relationship to reality and within reality and as a part of reality as a whole. And in ultimately, in the echoes of my experience, I find the sparkle of the divine presence. In the aesthetic experience, we're sensing a revelation of God. Have you ever had a moment like that where you sense that divinity and the dance of life around you? If you have, let me know by writing about it in the comments below. Now, at the risk of overquoting the same people too many times in the same podcast, it happens to be that the Rabbeinu Bachia really makes this point in a beautiful reflection he has about God's presence that he writes in the fifth chapter of Shar HaBechina, the gate of reflection within the duties of the heart. And he writes there about Tenu'ah, the stirring motion of all of life. You know, when you think about it, you realize that all of our universe is states of being, right? snapshots of time-space, which on their own are frozen positions. 
It's only through consciousness that these individual slices of life are stitched together and discovered to be flowing, right, teeming with life as they move from one state to the other. And he writes that when you understand the mystery of this motion and change, and you comprehend its true nature and its spiritual character, when you realize that it's one of the most wondrous revelations of the spirit of life that flows through all things, then and only then will it become clear to you that your every move, great or small, external or internal, is tied intimately to God's will, a revelation of that expression of existence which runs through all things. So it's the very vibrations of life, that pulsing, animated quality of all of existence that reveals God's constant involvement in the sharing of life with every detail of being. And when we start to realize that the very experience of being alive is itself a revelation of God's personal attention and sharing with the unique life that is you, you begin to sense the richness of your life in a completely new way. So that's one takeaway, which I really do think can change the feelings flowing through our life and connect us with that overlap of intimacy that connects us, our existence, with the first being. The second takeaway really builds upon that newfound awareness from the first. See, we've learned about God that he is this first being, this eternal and singular existence, which always was before all else. How are we supposed to relate to that or, or emulate that in our own lives in anything more than some lofty meditative state? And I think that the point is that we're supposed to strive to be in the same way that God is, to exist most fully, to achieve eternality, and to become one to whatever extent that we can. And what I mean by that is that, yes, it's true, of course, everything which exists, exists already. But aren't there times when we feel more alive, more present? And then there are times when we feel as though we're almost drifting our way through life or, or through the day without really embodying the moments of life we've been given, right? I mean, we've all experienced those types of moments. But what should, what should we be striving for? Right? What should we place as our goal, our focus, to be real in as similar a way to God as we can, to exist more fully, more completely, to maximize every moment of life available to us in the greatest way possible, and by doing so, to transcend the limitations of our local space and inhabit a broader, a more substantial reality? How can we tap into that eternality? How can we experience that broader reality? Say the words of our beautiful prayers, Natan lanu Torah emet v'chaye olam God gave us the instructions of truth, the roadmap of reality, and by doing so, planted eternal life in our midst, eternal life. The gift of Torah is the opportunity to be like God, to chart every moment of our lives along though that blueprint of reality provided to us, and ultimately to merit living a life which can emerge into a higher level of life in the world to come, a world without death, without limitation. And beautifully, this is actually how the Rambam explains the words of King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, when he writes in Proverbs the words, L'hanchil ohavai yesh, that God gives yeshut, existence, to those who love him. Rambam explains that the ultimate reward for the performance of mitzvot, for a person who has invested himself or herself into integrating Torah's vision into his own being is existence itself, to be connected and aware of God, of reality, in a way which is so pleasurable, so energizing, 
that it simply defies the limits of language to express in any way, shape, or form. And incredibly, this is also the way that the Rambam explains the highest level of performance of mitzvot. When a person is engaging with God in the covenant of Israel for no ulterior motive, says the Rambam, Ose et ha-emet emet. Doing truth because it is the truth. Being real because that's all I could ever possibly want to be. Not to be living in an illusion. To strive for authenticity, for being genuine, for expressing truth in all my actions and ideas. Being real and elevating our life to being in sync with God's greatest dreams for creation is what Torah can ultimately provide to those who commit themselves to walking her pathways, the Torah emet, the instructions for reality. And as a person creates this singularity, this focus within their life, the centrality of truth and authenticity, they become one in a similar way that God himself is one. So I hope that this is a good beginning to understanding and really getting to know God on a deeper level. And as I mentioned in, in our next episode, we will continue this journey with a deeper look into God as he's made known to us through the Torah, the God of history. But for now, let's strive to discover that experience of a shared space and overlap between us and God and commit ourselves to a life of authenticity, of higher meaning, and of finding that unity, that oneness, that powerful experience of being, which is available to each and every one of us through that incredible gift that we've been given, the instructions for living, the roadmap of life. I'm Chaim Davies, and this is The Chaim Davies Show. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed that segment of The Chaim Davies Show. If you did, be sure to subscribe and hit the notification bell or follow our podcast so you can stay up to date on all our future content. Thank you.